We are in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 32. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we see how the people rebelled, and they worshipped in a way that they thought was right, but rebelled against you, the living God, in doing what you said to do in the way that you said to do it. Father, I pray as we look into your word that we would see what you've said about yourself and believe it, what you've told us to do, and do it, Father. We want to hear your voice. We want to follow you in the way that you've said is pleasing to you. So help us, as Bob preaches this morning, to see you as you truly are, that we might love you as we ought and obey you as we ought in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title, for those of you who know me and have heard me a time or two, is not shocking, working like the devil, serving the Lord. I looked up that song, country western song, by uh, Del Reeves, and I looked through the lyrics of it. But the essence of it is that there are people who are doing things that they consider God's work and God's way in a way that isn't his work or his way. Uh, the $5 word for that is syncretism. It is the merging of that which is spiritual and true with that which is, let's say, carnal. And really, the merger of those two things results in something that's pretty seriously wrong. And I would like to suggest to you that 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 is a very serious problem today. And I'd like to work through some of those areas where I think we can see it. I am not speaking this as an indictment of CBC. I am speaking this, I think, as an expression of the commitment of the elders of CBC to the scriptures and to their sufficiency and adequacy. But there are some things that, that I am troubled by, and my fear is that you will retitle my message, Grumpy Old Men. And that is not what I'm really looking for. 
Um, but I do want to start, if I can, with that text in Exodus chapter 32. And, and this is about syncretism as it relates to worship. I've got several categories, but worship is my, my first category. It's interesting, and when you think about this, you remember there was that meal that was described with the 70 elders of Israel and Moses, and they looked up and they saw this manifestation of the, the glory of God. And then Moses goes on up the, the mountain uh, and is going to receive what I call a hard copy of the law. And uh, he's up there, and all the while that these things are going on down below, you really have this, this, the, the thunder and the lightning and, and this smoke and this display in the background. If you had a camera in the background to what's going on with this idol worship, here is this manifestation of God's presence, His greatness and His power that somehow just gets filtered out in the process. And the people say, Moses now is, is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not sure how long it took Aaron to fashion that golden calf, but you know what my thoughts are about Aaron and his gold-fashioning ability is. This boy's a shepherd. It's not Oholiab and Bezalel, the great metal workers. He really does throw something together. And I don't think the looks of that idol was such that it would draw you particularly to worship. But here he is. He has the people tear off their earrings, which my suspicion is were those things that were donated by Egyptians and no doubt dedicated to the pagan deities of Egypt. They tear those things off, melt down the gold, and fashion this golden calf. We all recognize that this is really heathen worship in the sense of what takes place. They rose up to eat, to drink, and to play. It was an orgy. It was an orgy. And, and, and God reacts very strongly. But it's the words that are said that are troubling. It says, Hear, O Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It was my friend Hugh Blevins who years ago made the observation. They didn't say, here is Baal or here is some other pagan deity. This is the God, they said, who brought them out of Egypt. In other words, they've, they've acknowledged the existence of one true God, Israel's God. They've acknowledged the existence of God's work uh, through the Exodus. But they want to represent God through this visual image. And the end result, no matter what you say, the end result of that worship is a heathen uh, orgy that produces all kinds of evil, and you know, of course, the, the death and destruction that came as a result of that. God took that very seriously. So what's so wrong with having a visual representation of God? Well, if you are consistent with the Word of God, you would look, for instance, at a text like Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says, when I spoke to you and when I gave you the law, you didn't see my body. You didn't see me. You didn't see any manifest expression of who I am. And so if you're going to create an idol, an idol which represents me, how could it be a bull? 
How could it be something that has to do with the stars or the heavens? Because God has no visible form. And so to create this idol is now to say, this is really what our God is like. And our God is like a bull. I mean, does that really reflect who God is? So it's a demeaning of God. It's a demeaning of his character. Uh, by the way, this whole matter of, of worship, I think, and, and heathenism can also be seen in Numbers chapter 25. Remember, there's the whole story of Balaam and Balak, and they want to curse uh, Israel so that they don't come and possess the land. And none of those efforts to get Balaam to curse the, the Israelites works. But one thing does, or at least it appears to, and that's in Numbers chapter 25, because the counsel is given, just have the little Moabite girlies come and have them invite the Israelite boys to church. Well, Moabite church was like Corinthian church. It was, it was saturated with immorality. And so you know the story from Numbers chapter 25 that the Israelites began to take the Moabite girls and, and all kinds of evil took place. And again, God had to move in a mighty and a destructive way to deal with that. The intermingling of God and his worship and his people with that which is really contrary to him, to his word, and to his will. Here's another illustration of worship gone amok in the Old Testament. Think about David and the ark. Remember the story in 1 Samuel? The ark is taken out as a sort of a magic uh, implement uh, in their war with the Philistines and, and the Israelites, they all worked up. It's like a, something like I saw a, a bit of on television in the stadium when the cowboys were playing. Man, they're hooping and hollering and carrying on something fierce. And the Israelites think, wow, we're going to win. And the Philistines are saying, we're dead meat. But the reality was God gave the Philistines the victory and they hauled off the ark. Remember? It, it was not a pretty scene. And, and they, they kept the ark as a trophy of their victory. The only problem was wherever the ark went, trouble followed. And now they got these Philistine towns saying to the next town down the line, it's your turn to keep the, uh, the ark of God. Remember Dagon falls down, breaks himself on the threshold and whatever. And, and, uh, depending on which translation you read, they, they send back gold, uh, hemorrhoids. And I would say they were itching to get rid of the ark. <laughs> but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So they send this thing off and they don't really know what to do. And, and one of the tests is they're trying to, to, to figure out a way to know, is this really God that's produced all this havoc? And so they say, well, we'll put it in a new cart and we'll have it uh, pulled by cows, and we'll separate their calves. So the natural inclination, obviously, of a cow and a calf is to, to be together. And so the, when the ark is turned loose, it goes straight up to Israelite territory, and the cows don't turn back. It's amazing. And the, and the Philistines say to themselves, whew, that was, that was good. <laughs> Get rid of that. You remember there was some irreverence because the Israelites looked into the ark, and then eventually there was the time when David wanted to bring the ark where they could now worship the Lord. The problem was that they decided to move the ark 
in the Philistine way. And so they had a cart, and and Uzzah was one of the guys who was helping to transport that, and the, uh, the oxen stumbled, and it looked like the ark somehow might be uh, disengaged, and, and, and that would be a horrible thing. And so Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark, and the Lord takes his life. That's pretty serious, pretty serious stuff for just, I mean, it's just, you know, transportation. So it seems. And uh, so David is really, he's really angry at God because God rained on his parade. I mean, it was a super day and all of a sudden, boy, the, the excitement, everything went away because God had done this, this terrible thing to Uzzah. What was David going to do? And then you remember the text that's, that's provided for us that gives us insight where it basically says that, uh, that God had prescribed that the ark was to be carried that other implements that were related to the temple or the tabernacle, they could be loaded on carts and carried, but, but that the ark had rings with poles that went through it. And so in effect, the guys that transported it were like pallbearers. But it, it had these, uh, these men who assured the, the security of the ark and its integrity, but they had forgotten that because the Philistine way just seemed so practical. And so finally, David said to his people, you know, it did say in the book of Numbers how the ark was to be transported, and that's really why we've had all this grief. And so they finally did it God's way, and it went well. But that was a form of syncretism. It was doing God's work in a way that God had not prescribed. In fact, in a way that God had really prohibited. And and it wasn't... I think a deliberate act, it was really an oversight in the sense that nobody had really said to themselves, I wonder how, I wonder how we're supposed to carry this ark around. It doesn't suggest to me that people had been having their devotions, uh, in, uh, in the book of Numbers. It was just lost in the shuffle. So that's the kind of syncretism that God has to deal with at times. That same syncretism, I believe, can be found in the New Testament when it comes to worship, and in particular in the city of Corinth. If you follow the argument of 1 Corinthians, it's interesting to me that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you have this rationale. And by the way, one of my logical things, one of my assumptions is the longer the argument and the greater the distance between points, the more suspect that argument is. Whenever anybody says to me, it's complicated, my inclination is to say, yeah, it's probably wrong too. If you have to go that far and that hard to reach that kind of logic, I'm out. So here they are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and these Corinthians are trying to justify going to pagan feasts and eating meats offered to idols. I don't think this is just about going to Kroger's and, and buying a hunk of meat that was somehow involved in that. I think it's involved in the actual process of worship that takes place. If you want to put it that way, in my mind, they were at those pagan feasts on Saturday night and they were at the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. And that was all kinds of trouble. So anyway, here's the argument. We know that there is only one God and there are no other gods. So these idols that represent some God 
there aren't really gods at all. And so idols don't mean anything at all. And so we can go to these pagan feasts and we can participate and have the free meal, I suspect it was, a free meal, a great steak dinner, and it doesn't mean anything because there are no gods except God and and idols don't really represent anything. Now, Paul's going to say a little bit later, you are actually sacrificing the demons. There are There are associations with those idols. But they make this fancy argument, and Paul starts in chapter 8 by saying, okay, I'm going to grant your assumption for a minute. I'm not going to shoot it down immediately, but I'm going to say this. Even if you have the right to eat that meat, to be a part of that festival, if you have a brother who is weaker, and your participation encourages him to do what he believes is sin, then you've caused a brother to sin. So you can't do it out of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, we have the right as apostles to be supported. There's no question about that right. But Paul says, some people are out there saying, this is my sort of expansion of the text, so you won't see these words exactly, but in effect they're saying, these preachers are all in it for the money. Don't you hear that today, by the way? And isn't it true to some degree, by the way? Think about Judas in the New Testament and money. It's only after the woman anoints the feet of our Lord Jesus and wastes what could have been given to the poor, which bag he would have held, by the way, and that that he finally decides, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus? Not a good view of money. Simon in Acts chapter 8, remember, he watches the Holy Spirit work and he says, man, he reaches for his wallet and says, hey, I'll take that. How much? He's going to market it to make money. Over and over again, we see misconceptions about money and Jesus does things a different way. Paul's admonition to the Ephesian elders is very interesting to me. In Acts chapter 20, he warns them of two prominent areas of problem. And I'm going to talk about the other one in a minute. But the second one, which he picks up in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Money is a huge problem. And I want to suggest to you that I have... No, I'm not going to... I'm going to confess to you. I have a huge problem with the way evangelicals raise money. I have a huge problem with it. We employ methodology that is essentially secular, flat-out secular methodology. And if it works then somehow we think that justifies the way we go about it. Just think about the way in which you know evangelicals going about the raising of funds. I'm not going to get overly specific, but I'm simply going to say, a lot of people will say, well, research reveals that such and such. If you do this or you do that, you get more money. Is that really what governs us? I hope not. Leadership. Now, here's a big one in my mind. What is the Christian view of leadership? I'm going to speak in a couple of weeks. I'm going to speak to a group overseas and I'm going to, I'm going to share with them what I've shared with you in years gone by called Jacob's seven laws of leadership. 
they are not good laws. I mean, this guy, Jacob, he, he did everything wrong, did he not? Everything wrong. So anyway, uh, you, you see uh, his way of, for instance, I, I was just reading a day or so ago, when, when Jacob's going to meet his, his brother Esau, and, and he puts, you know, he puts the, the concubines out there first with their, with their stuff. And then he puts Leah. And last, he puts Rachel. All through his life, Jacob is trying to exalt Rachel and her offspring. When God is going to use Leah and her offspring, Judah's the offspring of Leah. Think about the, the children. Leah has six kids. Rachel has two. Leah and her handmaid have eight kids. Rachel and her handmaid have four. Judah, Simeon, Levi are all of the offspring of Leah. And yet here's Jacob all of his life trying to pull back, as it were, uh, Leah and her offspring. And he even offers them up first to his brother. If you're going to kill anybody, take them first, but leave Rachel alone. He exalts Joseph, but it's Judah who's going to be the one through whom the Messianic line comes. Anyway, leadership. Think about Saul in in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel. Samuel's going to come and he's going to offer a sacrifice and then they're going to go to battle with the Philistines. And Saul is sitting there looking at his watch saying, oh man, man, he's late. He's late. I'll just have to force myself to offer the sacrifice so that we can get on with this battle thing. And, of course, the minute he offers the sacrifice, (laughs) Samuel shows up. But, you see, he said, well, the urgency of the moment, the urgency of the occasion was such that even though God had prescribed boundaries and roles, he had to sidestep those out of urgency. He was working like the devil, serving the Lord. David and his power. What does David do with his power and leadership? Well, you know, he did great things at the beginning, but think about David when he's at war. He should be leading his troops, and he decides that he is so good, he can win from a distance. So he goes back to Jerusalem and lays in bed, sleeps in late while his men are out there risking their lives, doing the hard stuff. And then he uses his power to take a woman who is the wife of one of his chief soldiers. And when her pregnancy is unavoidably becoming evident, he uses his power to lead his army in a way that puts Uriah to death. It's not exactly the way power ought to be exercised. Interestingly, God's principles of the use of power even apply to pagans. Remember in in Daniel chapter 4, you've got Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar starts singing the wrong song, How Great I Am. And God puts him down, gets him low on grass. You can take that any way you like. And, And it's only there that God brings it back. But Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, before these things happen, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, there may be hope. But the hope is that you start using your power to care for the poor. You do that and your kingdom may be extended. Kings who use their power to elevate themselves and to oppress the poor are running contrary to God's system. And I hate to say it, but that happens outside the church and inside. 
power is a huge piece. Look at the disciples. Who is the greatest? They're arguing. While Jesus is telling them what's going to happen and who's going to do it, they're not hearing because they're arguing about who among them is the greatest. They want to know who could sit at the edge. You know, the disciples, James and John, their mama wants their son, her boys, to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. Jesus says to them, we don't do things the Gentile way. Gentiles use their power to oppress people. That's not the way it is in my kingdom. It took the disciples a long time to figure that out, and mainly by watching the leadership of our Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 20, I said I would come back to this, and I have. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. Now, this is a place where when Paul was there, he was there longer probably than anywhere else. And it says, all Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this Asian ministry was huge. And and elders were appointed, and Paul calls those elders to himself in Acts chapter 20. And he says this, and, and I want you to notice the role that the scriptures play in this, because in my mind, all of this comes down to how authoritative and how sufficient is the teaching of God's word. And how much do we need to bring from outside and add to that to somehow make things right? My answer, by the way, is zero. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We need to be very careful about what we import. But listen to what Paul says. They came to him and he said, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came to, upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. You know how cults begin? They begin by going outside of Scripture and going in little groups, little knowing groups that somehow have greater insight than everybody else and who look down upon them. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, just a little bit down from that. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. See, it's one thing to go around the Scripture cherry-picking verses that sort of fit your system. It's another thing to teach the whole system. Now you have something that I think is far more trustworthy. So look what he warns them of in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Some of those very men that Paul is looking at eyeball to eyeball are going to be the ones who rise up and who say to themselves, you know, this thing about plurality, it's, it, eh, no, no, no. I really, I really have the best insight. People need to follow me. I need to be the CEO of the church. And the way in which you can create an individual following, my friends, is not by staying in the main line of scripture. It's by going beyond scripture. It's by going outside of scripture and having some unique take on the scriptures that people somehow find attractive to them. 
But look at what he says as the cure in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you, build you up and give you the inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. What's the protection against the, the cultic leadership of some people? It's God's word. It's God's word. And it's all of God's word, not just bits and pieces. It's that which we understand in totality. Now, here's something I'm not sure you have heard before, but I want to play it out. I think what Paul is warning about in Acts chapter 20 is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy. Now, we think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, qualifications for elders. Titus chapter 1, qualifications for elders. We see those as parallel texts. Well, in a way they are, but in a way they're not. Paul says to Titus, I sent you and left you there in Crete to appoint elders in these new churches, baby churches. So Titus is about appointing elders in brand new churches. That isn't true of Ephesus, friends. They've been around for a long time. Paul's warning the the elders in Acts chapter 20. They've been around for a good long while. What he says is, I left you in Ephesus to straighten out some teaching that's gone south. Remember that? Uh, let's look at this. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either the what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So here I think what you see is the play out of exactly what Paul warned about. There were some guys who they, they started out in a pluralistic leadership form and yet they were just like the disciples. Who's the greatest? And so they start adding their own unique little twist to the Scriptures and they start gaining their following. Does it surprise you, therefore, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, some are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Does it surprise you that there are cliques that have come up in the church at Corinth? But what I want you to notice is this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. In other words, when he says, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, Paul is saying, I don't mean me and I don't mean Apollos. I'm plugging our names in because there are other guys that need to be put in those categories. He says, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written and that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. You know how you create a following? You get unique. And that's exactly what had happened. And that's why I believe that 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe all of 1 Timothy is not appointing new elders to that church. It's about removing elders from that church. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, here's the way in which you deal with the correction of an elder. I believe that already the Ephesus situation had gone south. And it went south because the leadership principle that our Lord taught had simply been put aside. 
And I got to tell you today, folks, when I look around and I see all these seminars that are going on and all these books that are written about how to be an effective church leader, folks, most all of that is secular stuff that's been sprinkled. Pardon me, my Presbyterian friends. It's been sprinkled with a little evangelical language. It's just, frankly, not so. And so what you have is guys now going out to churches who are being told, you need to be the CEO, you need to take charge, you need to get rid of that old riffraff, and you take over because you know best. i got to tell you, folks, that's syncretism in its worst form as far as leadership is concerned, and it is there, and it is rampant. All right. So, oh, one more area in leadership. Gender. Have you noticed that in in our culture, it now becomes just unthinkable that women cannot do everything men can do, including leading the church? And I I have to tell you, I'm amazed as as I look around at evangelical churches who are saying, well, women can be elders. Well, women can be pastors. Women can preach. And what they're really saying is there is no distinction to be made or maintained between men and women in the church. This is one instance, and I may be wrong in this, this is one instance where I don't think the church, in a sense, fell in in what they're doing because of the world. I think the world fell because of the church. We started obliterating the distinctions between men and women. Where are, where are our children going to learn that men and women are different and they have different responsibilities if it's not in the church and in the home? You sabotage the church and you've sabotaged your culture. And my friend, we are, we are in deep trouble. I guess that's the grumpy part, isn't it? Okay. One last thing. Evangelism and discipleship. Well, you, <laughs> you didn't have to worry about it with Jonah. He he wasn't into evangelism. And yet the humor was, he was the most successful evangelist of all in spite of the fact that he did not want Gentiles a part of it. But think about Jacob, for instance, and Shechem. Here's Jacob. He's supposed to be on his way back to the land and he's supposed to be maintaining the purity of the line, and, and they end up in Shechem, and the name of the kid is Shechem, no surprise, as well. And he takes a liking to Dinah, and he uh, accosts her and, and then wants to marry her. And and the mayor of Shechem says, well, listen, you guys just just live with us and intermarry with us, and we'll all be one big happy family. Jacob basically said yes. It was his sons, Dinah's brothers, who said, no. Now, I'm not justifying the way in which they went about it. I'm simply saying, here's this accommodation mode where somehow, in order to fit in and be a part of the world in which we are, we're willing to make compromises, big ones. Today, I believe that we accommodate too. And I want to say, when it comes to evangelism, well, let me read you this text. It'll say it all. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many 
peddling the word of God. The uh, Holman Christian Standard says this, we do not market the word of God for profit. NIV, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. How much of our evangelism is just baptized marketing? How much of what we do to proclaim the gospel, to encourage people to come to faith, how much of that is just advertising? i got to tell you, I'm concerned because we've really lost sight of the power of the gospel. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It isn't advertising that's the power of God. It's the gospel that's the power of God. So in all those things, I'm saying the world around us is really seeking to squeeze us, as J.B. Phillips would say, into its mold. And syncretism is simply going about what we are to do as the people of God, but in a way that is largely directed and governed by secular principles and thinking. And that, in my opinion, is virtually suicidal. So there is the danger to either avoid or disobey the Word of God or to go beyond it. Uh, A preacher who had a great influence in my life in my younger days said, It's either the Bible plus or the Bible minus. And that's really what Paul was saying with respect to to Corinth. These people are adding to the Scriptures. They're going beyond the Scriptures. And so either we fall short by not reaching up to where they are, or we go beyond where they are and we add on. That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, how do you take your traditions and set aside the commands of God. Oh, this is Corban. This is devoted to God. Sorry, mom and pop, I can't help you in your old age. Paul says, the scriptures are clear. You're to care for your parents. But now you've extended these rules to where your traditions actually go beyond scripture. I think we need to be very careful as churches that we don't start adding legalistic add-ons to the gospel and the scriptures, thinking that we're doing God a favor and we're furthering the work of Christ through his church. I would say this. What my exhortation is, we ought to be like Moses. We need to learn God's ways. Exodus, later on in that section, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, teach me your ways that I may find favor in your sight. God's ways in Isaiah chapter uh, 55 are not man's ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Don't we really need to take that into account? Don't we need to saturate, saturate ourselves in the Scriptures so that we know God's ways? And that begins to play itself out in the way we go about about church. Our culture is counter-Christian. Let me say that one more time. Our culture is counter-Christian, and more so every day. So Christians had better learn to be counter-culture. This is really serious stuff, I think, that we're dealing with. Now, let me one one last thing. What does all this mean? Well, it means that God does things differently to reveal his sovereignty. 
See, God could have led the Israelites out of Egypt in a way that they went right on up the coast, up to Israel, at Palestine, but he doesn't. Why? He leads them instead so that they get between the Red Sea and and the Egyptian army. Now, a pragmatist would say to themselves, man, doesn't God know anything about Google Maps? Oh, he does. But God goes about what he does so that it becomes necessary to trust him rather than to trust our own wisdom. God chooses the, the simple and the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the wise, 1 Corinthians, right? He chooses to come when, when he's asked, why aren't you with, with us at the country club, the elite? Jesus says, I didn't come to heal people who are well. I came to heal people who are sick. Jesus did everything wrong. Look at the disciples. Were these the most likely to succeed in their class at school? No, they were losers. And that way God gets the glory. And it means we have to depend on him. The disciples, remember the apostles in Acts chapter 6 said, our fundamental task is prayer and the ministry of the word. We need to know the word in order to know the way. And friends, when we know the way, we better be praying because it isn't man's way and it's going to take divine intervention. Now, all this I'm saying to believers, but I would simply say this. Our culture also has its way of telling people how to get to heaven. And they're dead wrong on that, too. It's not therapy. It's not any of these other things. It is simply acknowledging our inability, our sin, our deserving of judgment. And the fact that Christ has come down He has manifested God to men. He has lived the perfect, sinless life. And he died in our place to take the penalty for our sins and to give us everlasting life. That's the one in whom you need to trust. That's where you need to start. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to be faithful to it. Help us to know your ways. Help us to follow those and help us to be very discerning about those things which look successful and effective but are really contrary to the way that you work. In Jesus' name, amen.